Welcome to The Deciders. This is Renee Frazier, the founder and CEO of Frazier Communications, a leading woman-owned advertising and communications firm in Southern California, the largest woman-owned and woman-led. We specialize at Frazier in changing behaviors, growing brands, and positively impacting society in both the private and public sectors. Our clients run the gamut from Hyundai and Lexus to the state of California, and most recently, we have been doing the communications for the county of Pu- the public health department of the county of Los Angeles regarding COVID-19 prevention and treatment. We're in very difficult times here, and the deciders has really started to focus on leaders and change agents who are dealing with the issues of our time. And I specifically want to talk about racial and social injustice issues that we have seen be identified more wholeheartedly than ever before in our community. We have seen in this time of disruption and unrest where people are protesting, rightfully so, about the many deaths at the hands of police officers of black and brown people, that there is institutional racism and systemic racism throughout our society. We see it in the disparities in the incidences of disease and death due to COVID-19. I'd like to talk about organizations that are addressing this directly. And we're fortunate to see many organizations that have been focused on systemic racism, racial injustice, and asking people to dig deep and think very much about their own experiences and unpacking their expectations regarding race. One of these organizations is the Disruptive Equity Education Project. The acronym is DEEP, Disruptive Equity Education Project. And our guest today is Dr. Darnisa Amante-Jackson, the president, co-founder, and CEO of the Disruptive Equity Education Project. She works with schools and corporations across the country, and is also a lecturer at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Dr. Amante-Jackson, welcome to The Deciders. Thank you very much, and I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to talk with you and learn a lot in these next few minutes. Let's talk about the work that DEEP does. I know you focus on dismantling or making apparent the systemic oppression and racism. Where do you begin? What kinds of projects do you do? I think that's a really great question, sort of that founding story and what is the work. So the projects that we're doing is really supporting organizations in undergoing a long-term cultural change over time. We've had the pleasure over these last few months, really the last year, in supporting folks in entertainment as well as commercial real estate and as well as their accompanying boards and foundations in being able to understand what does it really mean to reckon systemically and how does that really impact the culture that we're hoping to have, the recruitment that we're hoping to do, and most importantly, sustainability. It's so important. You know, I, uh, many of us have talked about uh, a very uh, in, uh, serious conversations we've had about how this is a, a reckoning moment for many of us. And there is a real strong feeling, and we hope it comes to pass, that this is a sustainable change. There's a recognition and a reckoning of how bad things are and what needs to happen. So it sounds like your organization is committed to that, and I appreciate that. When you, you said at the outset, This is part of a cultural change that's been happening. Do you see this as a a part of a longer line of change? And if so, can we be optimistic that we're really seeing 
true signs of change? Yes, you know, I do consider myself to be an optimistic realist, meaning I always want the best intentions, which is to really create cultures of belonging where everyone can feel seen, when people's voices are acknowledged, but not only acknowledged, but embedded as a part of enacting our vision and journey along the way. And why does that matter so much? Right, culture is actually the thing that many organizations have been taught to focus on through a perfunctory kind of way, right, through a scorecard. Mm. And this work is more than metrics. Metrics alone don't increase recruitment. They don't shift the culture that allows folks from marginalized experiences to stay. And I really do think that we are at a moment when leaders of corporations are naming that they don't know what they don't know. I've seen all of the Black Lives Matter statements, the reckoning that staff have been having, and I'm not defining a reckoning as a yelling. It's not a bad thing. It's the moment when you realize that multiple truths are possible and that you can be connected to these truths, even if they don't feel proximate to you, but our understanding of the way in which the world shows up on people differently is actually the way to sustain a culture of accountability. It empowers people to want to stay in an organization, to be promoted up a pipeline, and it lessens tokenization. And I'm saying, and I am really seeing leaders say, we don't want to do it quickly. We want to do it the right way. We don't just want to have a one-off implicit bias session we want to understand what those biases look like within our organization more than just through the lens of a scorecard. I like that a lot. I, and I, I definitely understand the relevance of that. I mean, at any time you do training or you change people's behavior, it has to be reinforced over time. It's not one time and one and done. And I, I saw on your website the, the idea of successful leaders digging deep to unpack their experiences with race and bias and really pulling out from inside of them what they what they probably had buried and, and may even be ashamed to talk about. Can you explain how you do that? Is that, uh, is that done through workshops? How do you get people to do that kind of consideration and reflection? You know, I really think the start of the work is helping people vision through a really long journey. If you think about the culture we live in, we live in a culture of urgency. I want to fix it. I want to fix it now. I want to have the expertise to fix it now. So the first big thing is supporting an organization envisioning. So we're talking about multiple years. It takes 10 years to achieve and have sustained equitable culture for an organization that size from 50 to 200 employees. And for every 100 more, add two to three years. Wow. So the first wow. step is being able to explain to people the other side of that journey is a greater good. It's a deeper impact in your mission and vision. It's a culture where people feel connected to your vision, not tokenized by it or siloed within it. The second part is helping people understand that workshops must be paired with executive coaching. The workshops alone do not a change make. What the workshops do 
is they show your staff, they show you examples of how you can have difficult yet meaningful conversations without feeling guilty, without feeling drug out, and without being canceled for not knowing what you don't know. And the mm-hmm. third one, the most important one, is once you know how to vision for the long term, once you know you have to experience coaching and do workshops, the third part is supporting a leader and modeling the vulnerability uh-huh. that this work takes. Vulnerability mm-hmm. here, folks, is not crying. It's the ability to say, I don't know what I don't know, and I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to iterate. I'm willing to fail forward. And to have a culture like that, for a leader to model like that, they have to be willing to manage expectations. We cannot achieve these goals with everything on the table. Things have to be prioritized and deprioritized to keep this vision a healthy one and one that doesn't do harm. That's really very uh, insightful, and I, I, I appreciate the sense of many years There's two things that come to mind here. One is uh, you really are talking about uh, inclusivity, genuine, genuine inclusiveness, right, in the workplace, not just diversity in the sense that you've got numbers, like you just said, right? And the second thing is uh, the value of vulnerability, and we all know Brene Brown and the work that she's done on that. I have to say, when I look at America's leaders, and particularly the top 1,000, you know, Fortune 1,000 companies, You don't see many leaders who acknowledge vulnerability or weakness. If anything, that's not the American way, right? You achieve, you strive, you recognize you make mistakes, but vulnerability is is deeper than just making mistakes. How do you get people to embrace vulnerability, particularly around something that's uh, worrisome, like racism, uh, and people being willing to acknowledge their own examples, particularly in the sustained space, as you're saying, right, over time, modeling the vulnerability. How does, how does that come about? It seems very difficult. Yeah, it's not easy, but if you'll bear with me, I can break it down in a few steps. The first Please. one, I actually think, is disruption itself. So an interruption is a pause. It's a temporary stop in time. It serves a little good, but it doesn't sustain the greater good, right? A disruption is an end to, and you can only disrupt when you name the systems that have created the culture that you're living in right now. So, for example, one of those systemic structures in this country is that to be successful, to be a leader, potentially means you have to be a-emotive, right? You have to lead with very emotions, right? Mm-hmm. And we have all sort of inculcated the belief that to be emotional shows weakness and that emotion now for us is on a dichotomy with weakness and not emotion is the thing that humanizes us so we can collectively be called to do something together. That's the first step to get folks to lean into vulnerability is you actually have to explain what vulnerability does and why. You see, the most important part of coaching is I can't assume a leader is going to meet me and what I know. I have to meet them in where they are. And do you know where where they are is? They want to impact their bottom line. They don't want people to get hurt. They've never necessarily seen culture enacted in this way. They're accustomed to hierarchy. 
hierarchy feels comfortable. And you have to be willing to acknowledge that this is what folks think. And you start with saying, if you only ever focus on diversity and quick fixes, you will not build the culture that creates the belonging enough to sustain who you just recruited. Uh, What does it look like to constantly be recruiting people only to have them leave? Your, your, Your recruitment is only as strong as the lower volume of exit interviews you have. That the absence of human resources and people culture actually undermines your bottom line. It creates a culture that is not recruitable really for anyone, but especially communities who experience marginalization. And that vulnerability is an essential, best practice, researched and proven to humanize an organization, to authenticate the work, and to maximize your investment in your recruitment pipeline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when so you meet folks there, you give them the why, yeah. you show right. them an example of how the why works, and then you reify that example through a real, actual reality that many of them have already seen but never had the words to explain. Tell us kind of like a, the process it goes you go through with an organization to make this effective, your deep program and things, the work that you do in workshops and coaching? Yes, we have a corporate framework that enacts this process in seven key stages. Um, And so you'll be able to find that on our website next week, (laughs) just for those of you who are like, where is it? I want to see it. So those seven stages start first with creating the barometer. You see, so many people don't know what they don't know, including they don't know what they don't know about their own organization. So it's an assessment. It's a gathering phase to really get artifacts to help us understand what is the culture we are visioning ourselves either away from or what are the things that are essential that we must keep along along an even longer process, right? So an assessment isn't always about leave everything at the door. It's lifting up both the things that are important about your culture, important about your company that must be sustained, and it gives you this additional expanded recommendation on things that will impact your culture and organization differently. That's the first step. The second step, then, to your point, does start with leadership, right? And here's why. When you're going on a journey that's 10 to 12 to 15 years long, People will sit on that journey with you if leaders can give them an idea of what the end goal is. If there is no communicated end goal, people have no idea what they're investing this much time for. So leaders have to start by actually defining the end. But to my leaders listening, you don't have to know every single brick on that yellow brick road. We just need to know that this road is going to Oz. The next set is once we've done that defining, you want to do some parallel work with organizations that have boards, right? Because a board has to be able to understand what are the fiduciary and governance implications to this vision. And if the board doesn't speak the language of this vision, it will be very hard for them to advocate for external impact in this vision. Mm-hmm. Right, so the board's got to have a training and a, a series of sessions as well. After your board and leaders, the next group are your mid-level managers or your senior leaders who are just not in the C-suite. 
And here's why. Because the vision has to get trickled down. Imagine this is a cascading waterfall. And the third rung on this cascade are the folks who actually support all of your culture. They Mm -hmm. create accountability. They unsilo people. They use protocols that sustain this investment. And if they can't model this vision, your staff will never take it up. And that's right. That's right. Right. Staff then have to have training. And I'm not saying these are spread out over years. I'm just saying this is both synchronous and asynchronous work. So even though it sounds like a rung, I'm not suggesting staff are at the bottom. I'm just saying imagine this as a long horizontal line and we're different points on the line and sometimes the same point. And so staff is all, they're the feet to this work. Right? Not necessarily workers in that way, but they're the ones who are living this culture. They are supporting this vision. They are the catalyzers of this vision, and they are your future pipeline for leadership. So you training them from the beginning means as they go up in this organization, they are carrying that ethos. They are carrying that culture, and then it just comes back down again. And the other two phases are constant data gathering. And then the mm-hmm. seventh phase is there are some organizations that don't have HR yet. So it's I'm like not. actually supporting you in building a people function. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for all that time, but I wanted to name it. You see, we're on a journey for a long time, but we're not doing the same thing the whole journey. Can you talk about the eyes, the four eyes that are the type of oppression, how people feel them in organizations, just so we might all be more sensitive of seeing them in our own companies? Yes, thank you, and I, and I really appreciate the focus on oppression, and I think it's important because equity, this journey, is about dismantling it, and I think sometimes feel like people feel that to dismantle it means the removal of them, the invisibilizing of them, and that's not mm-hmm. it. So there are four types of oppression, and for those of you who are big picture people, imagine it's shaped like a grid. At the top of this grid is the system. This is the stuff that you can't see, you don't necessarily holistically control, but it's trying to control you. At the bottom of this grid, we have the people stuff. This is the stuff we do to each other. Okay, so that's the helpful organizer. The first big form of oppression is ideological oppression. Ideological oppression are all the things that we've been taught usually in school, through entertainment, through media, through social cues on the street. These are the messages that we are given, whether we know it or not, that are actually creating biases, right? So if you think about it, there are certain folks in this country who have never met a black person. And now here I come, but if the only way you've ever seen a black person is through our representation in the media, what then would you think? What beliefs have you been taught? Mm-hmm. Right? So normally say that most of us have seen on television, like black people as criminals, as homeless folks, and there's nothing wrong with being homeless, but there's a particular portrayal of the ethnicities mm-hmm. of homeless communities. The narratives we tell about black community, the violence we name. So if this is all you've ever seen, that is a form of an ideological oppressive, you know, thing being said. The next systemic thing is institutional oppression. This is what happens when those really big beliefs get codified. 
They become a policy. They become a law. So if we take this example of like how black community is portrayed, we have institutionalized this belief through over-policing, racial profiling, even as simple as you're walking down the street and you see someone approaching you and you cross the street for fear. These are all things that originate from policies and practices like that. Internalized oppression is the stuff that you believe, even though you don't know you believe it. So that's where unconscious bias is, implicit bias. And then the last one is interpersonal oppression. This is people-to-people oppression. So these are the microaggressions, the things we don't know are hurtful, and we say them to people. And then the macroaggressions, the things we know are hurtful and we still say. And see, the way oppression works is it wants you to blame people for the thing that the system has manifested. So for mm-hmm. poverty, for uh, problems related to homelessness and people experiencing homelessness, you start to blame people and groups of people as opposed exactly. to maybe. Hey, you didn't work hard enough. Instead of us asking what are the institutional policies that prevent either some of our veterans or folks with mental illness or folks who are in marginalized communities from having access to jobs and opportunity to apply, but we blame them for not working. Yeah. What would you say to people as individuals and within their own companies? What can they do to help bring out a, a, a reckoning, a, sensation, a sensing of what the problems are, and perhaps a willingness to bring an organization like yours into their companies? Mm. I think it's the question of how do you want to be remembered? This is mm-hmm. a legacy moment. This is a call to action for people who maybe have wanted to do something and didn't know how, and I think it's a call to action for folks to try something different to see how we can impact your long-term goal. I am optimistic that this change will be sustained because I think it's becoming very clear to people history doesn't just repeat itself. It's repeating itself because the systems haven't changed, and that's a great legacy to be had. It's bigger than bottom line, and a commitment to this journey will still impact your bottom line, too. So why not? If not now, when? And if not you, who? Beautifully said. Beautifully said, uh, Dr. Amante Jackson. I mean, I think when you make it a legacy moment, you make people realize that this is their time, as you said, and if not them, who? People, People should visit your website. Let's talk about that for a moment. It's a Disruptive Equity Education Project, and is it .org or .com? Yep. Our website is digdeepforequity.org. Got it. Got it. We will But if you make sure type that our full put, name out, the website will come up as well. Right, if you do it in searching. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and how long have you been in business doing this work? Yep, so Deep will be five years old. Uh, in next year. So we're about four and a half now. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, the time is right for this. May I ask what caused you to start the organization, you and your co-founders? What was the instigation? I think the instigation was that there just has to be a better way to help people reckon with the things that have been invisible to us, but it can be structured. There can be a process. It can be measurable. 
and people will legitimately feel different and better on the other side. And I just hadn't seen an organization do it in exactly the way that I had envisioned. And that was our call to action to contribute different skills to a collective greater good. Yeah, I think you're doing a remarkable work. I, I, I hope you're seeing success in the companies you're working with. Have you seen change and are you seeing progress as you move through the seven parts of the framework? Yes, we are seeing change and progress, and that's been the most encouraging thing. Um, we've seen leaders create roadmaps, be able to have conversations with their entire organizations about their diversity and their data or the lack thereof. We've seen folks leaning into cultures of care, as well as shifts in recruitment practices, establishment of employee resource groups for more belonging, and it's been wonderful. The change is felt and it feels sustaining. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. We've learned a lot about how you make change happen, a sustainable change within a culture and an ideology in your company to be much more inclusive and make the change be a permanent change that people feel with inside themselves, not just as part of the, as the rules change, if you will. The culture truly changes. Our guest today has been uh, Dr. Darnisa Amante Jackson, the president, co-founder, and CEO of Disruptive Equity Education Project. Thank you very much for being on our show today, and I've learned a great deal. People will look for this podcast at the Frazier Communications website. Uh, as people know, when they listen to our show, we are a full-service advertising and marketing firm, and we can be found at FrazierCommunications.com. You can find the full interview there and many others. Thank you, Dr. Amonti Jackson. It's been a, a delight speaking to you. I've learned a great deal today, and I wish you Godspeed in all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Deciders with Renee Frazier. Listen next week, and we'll look forward to seeing you then. In the meantime, please stay safe and stay sane.